This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah, in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. Please uh, feel free to uh, click on my my uh, new uh, support of my media, all the media work I'm doing. Please uh, click on that if you're enjoying these classes. At least, at least come in at some level to the club, which is uh, uh, yomtovmediaclub.com. So join that. Be a supporter. I promise that at some day, at some point, we're going to do something really cool because I'm into generosity. And anyone who's supporting the work I'm doing, is I'm going to be supporting you as well. The sense is to keep going with the, with the theme of... of the, you know, just what difference does anything make? I kind of like that theme. Uh, you guys like that theme? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I noticed a lot of people walking around like nothing makes a difference, you know. Um, and in, in, a, in a major way, that's very true. In the perspective of reality, the, you know, just physical reality, like it all, everything just kind of equals out in the end. You know, everything just kind of boils down to uh, all the equations equal zero in the end. In the, the, there's a tremendous balance going around always. Sometimes you need a couple of years to go by to see how things balance out. But there's a certain. Um, there's just a balance of it all. Like we'll have drought years, and then we're, we're like we're lacking water, so so we're gonna create desalinization plants, and and then those desalinization plants are gonna fix our water problem. But in fact, we do have rain fixing our water problem. Like this year, we're having this insane amount of rain. There's a bunch more coming uh, in the next days. Thank God. So the uh, we're th- starting Thursday, it's just going big time rain till like Sunday or mo- till Monday even. Uh, I think there's a bit of a respite, maybe on Friday, maybe on Saturday, I forget. But the, um, but those desalinization plants, which are expensive, they're hard to invent, they're expensive to make, but the world's going to need them and is already buying them from Israel. And so there's, so like the bad news of the drought years was the good news for the world that needs desalinization plants to take the salt out of the water so that people can drink. This is happening all the time in all our lives where, where we're just where everything kind of equals out in the end and you know I'll, I'll be walking down the street going to a store crossing town a little bit get to that store to find it closed and then meet someone right outside the door who really needed to talk to me but didn't know how to reach me and so like what, what's going on why, did, why didn't I just google, google that store and see that it was closed or was I even thinking that it was, would be open at that point of the day or night and there's this person who needed me and, and it was all like equaling out because there's some, some part of the equation of life there was a lack just like the lack of water I discussed but there was a lack for some person and then I had to have a lack because I needed to get to the store to buy something to fill the lack to fix something in my house and the, of course, the store was closed, but this guy, you know, needed me. And so I got to help him. And then I got to go home. And my wife said, you know, what, where's the thing to fix the house? And I'm like, 
the place is closed. She's like, you know, can't you just take our house a little more seriously? And then she she kind of like gives a little rant about house upkeep, and then ultimately breaks down crying, saying that you know what, this has nothing to do with the house. It's really what I'm feeling is lonely right now, and and so then I'm I'm like wow, kicking into gear, like really being there for my wife, and this had nothing to do with that pipe in the in our in our bathroom and 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 now I'm like really there for her and she would never broken down crying like that had that guy had the pipe had the store been open which means I would never have seen this guy and so it all equals zero in the end because w- you'll notice that whatever you need you always get whatever you want for sure you get but whatever you need you get we know about what you want because what you want is like you know the, the world conspires for that like like, whatever you desire, the, the universe literally conspires to fulfill that. Even when it goes against you, even when it goes against God, you'll notice everything you've ever wanted to do, even if it was against God, you succeeded. So not only did he let you, he enabled you, but not only did he enable you, he orchestrated the whole thing. He even gave you the thought of wanting such a thing. And then you think, well, what good is it for God for you to want the wrong things and then help you get them? And the answer is that when you want the wrong thing and you go get it, you get these certain feelings inside because he created us unlike the other, unlike mineral plants and animals. He created us with conscience. And then all of a sudden you get strong in places you would never have gotten strong in because we're in some giant personal growth seminar called Our Life. And he's the personal growth seminar leader. And he's got all kinds of tricks up his sleeve to have you do all kinds of crazy stuff, which has you bouncing off stuff in a way that makes you stronger. You start to understand the, the topography of the world. You start understanding the, the edge of things. And then from those edges, you build yourself. And, and so God's like way more mature than you realize. Like you don't do something wrong and God's like, don't. I can't believe it. You can't do anything wrong if God doesn't arrange it for you. And even arrange the thoughts of doing something wrong so that you'll grow in his seminar. You are in the ultimate seminar. It's a bit of a long-term seminar, which is a little bit lame. No offense, God. But no, it's just that you're going to have a spouse involved while you're like only in the first 20 years of your seminar, 30 years of your seminar, you're going to have somebody involved. That ain't cool. I certainly don't want to marry somebody at the beginning of a seminar. You know, I don't mind marrying them at the end of their seminar when they've kind of worked their stuff out because I don't want it leaking all over me. But meanwhile, I leaked all over my wife. And she leaked all over me for years. And I guess maybe it's meant to be. In God's seminar, it's meant to be that way. But as someone who runs these kinds of seminars, I prefer to get a lot done in five days just to lighten the load of the children growing up in people's houses that maybe they won't need seminars, you know, because their parents were had clean energy while raising their children. So the kids weren't so messed up. It would be nice if people... Ran, burn cleaner fuel when raising families and stuff. I mean, you see, like, these days, most people don't even... Most people are nervous about even having a family. Anyway, but the, this is what I want to speak about today, is this, like, this some, some total of zero in the end. Like, everything equals out. It's incredible. Like, unbelievable masterpiece this world is with each individual... 
each individual with free will, meaning you're making all your choices. You're making all your choices. So, like, how do you pull that off? And do you realize how wondrous this being is? That he can have everything equals zero. It all zeroes out. Like, the whole spreadsheet zeroes out in the end. Over and over again, meaning things are zeroing out as we speak all over the place. I'm, I'm probably zeroing out something for you just by you listening to this. Some, some aspect of your life's getting zeroed out, so, like, everything makes sense. When we say zeroed out, what I mean by that is in accounting, like, if you're an accountant, you've got to, like, things have to make sense for the person you're working for. So you want everything to come to zero at the end, like, like whatever was spent was spent and whatever came in was came, came in, and it all makes sense and accounted for. Everything's accounted for. And that's called zeroed out. No leftovers here, there, or anywhere. Sometimes I wonder if, if financially we should actually be zeroed out. Because if your accountant kept zeroing you out and, and said, look, you made no money this year, but you survived perfectly. And you had everything you needed. Like, how would you guys feel about that? Would you be happy with a life like that? If your accountant could come up to you every year, once a year, and just say, you did it again. Zero. And you did absolutely everything you wanted to do. You ate everything you wanted to eat. You went to do everything you wanted to do. You flew to wherever the bucket list places were that you wanted to fly to. And you just came out zero every year. And even in later, meaning now you have a family, now you have kids, you're even making weddings, and you're still zeroing out every year. You bought a home, got a mortgage, you come out zero every year. Raise your hand if you could be promised to be at zero every year at the end of the year and your accountant's just like, you're a miracle. How do you do it? Like you keep coming out to absolutely zero at the end of every year. Raise your hand if you'd be, if you could get that kind of promise from God, you'd prefer that than a prophet. But a prophet, but who knows what's going to be year after year. Raise your hand if zero would be perfect for you. Yeah, but you got to raise your hand and you got to let go of profits. Like, because one year you're going to be up like a quarter million dollars. And next year, you may be down a half a million. The next year, you're up half a million. The next year, you're down three quarters of it. So who would take who would take zero every year? Okay, anyone who didn't raise their hands are fools. Okay, no offense. No offense. But you think money is security. God, I, I believe if, in myself. Maybe you missed. Maybe you missed. Maybe you missed the point that if you came out to zero every year with a promise from God, if you came out to zero every year with a promise from God that, you know, you're going to be fine and it's going to keep going that way, that you did really, really well. You didn't leave anything over for your kids, but on the other hand, your kids won't be losers. Because people who have a lot of money, their kids are often losers. And the uh, and whereas people who are on the level of zero, zeroing out in their lives, like they're really just spending what they're making as they go. And even if they spend more, they'll just make more, meaning God's just going to somehow like stoop it in somehow that you'll have extra money. The people who live like that, their kids are, are generally healthier people. They're generally healthier people. They're, you, know, you know, there's like tribes all over the world that have like zero waste. You know this? Like this. There's tribes out there. They've been living for thousands of years. Some of them are quite large. And they're in jungles of Africa and, and Southeast Asia and, uh, and uh, South America and the Amazon. They, they, there's, no, there's no extra. It's zeroed out. It's always equals zero in the end. And there they are, another year. Another year. 
What an amazing year. Now, our lives, you know, as Westerners, not that we're really Westerners, we're Jews, which is, you know, I imagine people watching this aren't necessarily Jews, so you are whatever you are. But, <laughs> but if you're understanding my English, you're probably at least from a Western country. The, uh, I'm so happy Israel, by the way, is not in the West. That's just amazing. Because where Judaism and Westernism overlap is like nowhere. Like, there's no overlap. And this is the scariest thing, is if you're a Western Jew, like let's say you're very Western and you're an observant Jew or whatever, observant friendly Jew, I don't know what you'd call yourself, but you realize that, that if, you're, if you somehow worked out how you could be a Westerner and a Jew at the same time, that you completely and utterly miss the point. Because there's zero overlap between Westernism and I don't know how much you guys have studied Westernism, but you know they have universities. If you can't handle a university, go on YouTube or something and watch some history classes on Western civilization. But, but there, we have no overlap. And not only that, we've never, ever, ever been friends. We are not friends with them. In fact, you know, Islam's more likely to give us a hug before any Westerner would throughout history. You know, and, and Islam's no friend of the Jews either. But boy, compared to Westernism... And here's the crazy thing, is that if we actually put you under a monitor, like this kind of, you know, it's like an MRI tube, but it, it's like a different kind of technology. It checks how Western you are compared to how Jewish you are. And, and so, and, and on the front, it, like, it has a meter of like, you know, like how, how uh, Western versus how Eastern, did I say Eastern? Sorry. How Western versus how Jewish you are. That, uh. That in, on, the, on the eastern side, it has an E, which stands for, sorry, we're going to say how western you are. It has an E for the word Asav. And however west it goes, it has a, a Y for the word Yaakov or Yisrael. And you, and you go in the tube and it's just like, you know, it's, it's like checking out every aspect of your life, like, like uh, your spending and your fashion and your, you know, your overemphasis on externality. And, and uh, you know, that's all Western stuff. So that's all going to be on the side of Asif. And, and, the, uh, and all your uh, relationship to money and, and all, your, all that stuff is all just going to be adding towards Asif. And then all the stuff that's like, that's like spirituality, like that this world's just a holographic projection, that God's running the show totally and that you really don't have to do much more than move your limbs around a lot. You know, like it's something you're good at. Like get good at something and move your limbs around and people will pay you for it, which is insane. You know, like you get to move your limbs around. I mean, my, the only limb I move around mostly is my mouth, <laughs> which is really funny. But if I just move my mouth enough, people will pay me for it and they just don't stop. And people love paying me for moving my mouth around, which is so funny. Think about it from my perspective. I'm just like, I'm, 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 there's a buck, you know. So, it's, but that's what I do. I mean, you are supposed to use your hands once in a while, you know. But uh, otherwise, people pay me for moving my lips, you know, which is the weirdest thing. But people do pay for all kinds of stuff, you know. Sometimes I'll even take a car somewhere and I'll pay him for like going like this. You know, like anyone could do that. But, uh, you know, here he's doing this, you know, and here I am handing him money. And, gee, he moved his hands in all the right places, you know, and put his feet on the right pedals. And here's his money, you know. So you definitely want to move your body around. But uh, 
but not much more than that. Not much more. Unless you're, of course, doing great service for the world. If you're doing great service for the world, then do much more. Do much more. If you're driving people around, well, you better take care of yourself and get your you-know-what out of that car because it's not going to be good for your posture and not going to be good for anything. You're just going to be a bad-backed, broken, angry taxi driver. You know, so definitely if you're just moving your body around to get paid, um, definitely uh, don't overdo that. But if you are making a difference, do a lot of it. Lots of it. Anyway, but imagine this tube, which like, which is like, let me just say it like this. Even if you're a Westerner, you would want much more on the side of Y than the side of E. Even if you're a Westerner, because, because I know Gentiles don't have Jewish souls, so they don't have the same existential, like, incredible thirst that Jews do. Like, Jews can't live with themselves if they don't know what they're living for. Like, they're literally going to just ram their head into a wall. Jews who don't know what they're living for are, like, horrifically depressed. Horrifically depressed. Gentiles who don't know what they're living for, I mean, what do you think they have bars for? So go get smashed and like ram your car into a tree or something like that's meaningful, you know. Find something to do with your with your with you know with a little bit of alcohol or something. But but Jews, alcohol doesn't make a difference. Alcohol is meaningless. So why do you think we have like almost no addiction? You know, Jewish people have almost no addiction when compared per capita to Gentiles. And we just and I mean these days there's more of it, but. That's because there's more meaninglessness and stuff. But they, but Jews in general, we're, we're just not a very addictive people. It's because it just doesn't fill the, it doesn't fill our existential vacuum very much. You know, like how's alcohol going to fill that, you know, or anything for that matter. And one thing Jews do like though is like cannabis and psychedelics and stuff like that. But that's only because it causes their brains to. Uh, to start thinking in all kinds of uh, new ways. And maybe there they'll find meaning. Maybe there. Maybe they'll find some meaning there. Um, the problem with it, though, of course, is that they think that the meaning's going to keep staying there every time they smoke some. <laughs> they don't realize that there's kind of a ceiling to, like, uh, you know, to that. And uh, sadly, sadly, uh, so many Jews that I meet, like, they got to cannabis because the meaning it brought them. But, uh, but there was a huge law of diminishing returns, yet they're still stoned all the time, even though they're not getting, they're not really getting much in taking. They're not getting the advantage of that particular plant that God put in this world. But, I, but he for sure put it in the world for Jews. You know, definitely. Gentiles, it's fun at concerts, I think. Gentiles like cannabis for rock concerts and stuff. You go to a rock concert, it's just all of a sudden, it's just like, woof. You know, the whole place just totally reeks, you know. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, uh, when I was in Santa Barbara, uh, I lived in Santa Barbara for five years in a college town, which had, it's the highest populated square mile west of the Mississippi, and everyone was between the ages of 18 and 22. Imagine what was going on over there. I mean, it was like, it was rated number one party school in the world every year, like forever. I mean, now, now it's number six, but, you know, it's already, I left there almost 30 years ago. And the, anyway, crazy, crazy campus there. But you ready for this crazy thing? You want to hear something amazing? The, um, so there would be these, these psychedelic parties that, you know, were definitely invite only. And, you know, a lot of people at these events and not a ton, you know, 
whatever, 50, 70 people, maybe 100 at a big, on a bigger one, and held it some, you know, some university crazy flop house apartment. And, and whatever, it was there, and everyone's going all night because, you know, they were just totally turned on, and they're going all night, and lots of loud music. And what would happen, and this happened every time, but every time without one exception, is there would be a bedroom, like a pretty big bedroom, that would slowly fill with people schmoozing. It was kind of the place to go schmooze, where you could actually hear yourself, hear yourself think, and maybe hear someone talk. And remember, people gathering there throughout the night, but people weren't leaving, they were staying. And then more people would come in and gather, and more people would come and gather, until it got to the point where there were about 50 people dancing, and about 20 people at around sunrise, there were 20 people in the bedroom where somewhere near the front of the bedroom by the door, two girls were talking and one of the girls said, oh my gosh, I should never have done this. I totally forgot I have to drive to LA for a bat mitzvah. And the little girl talking to her says, you're Jewish? And she's like, hope that's not a problem. She's like, well, no, it's not a problem at all. I'm Jewish. She's like, you're kidding. And the, the, like, someone overheard them. They're like, you guys are Jewish? I'm Jewish. And they, you're Jewish? I'm the person he was talking to, he's Jewish. You know, and everyone's Jewish, but except there's two like total hippies, like full on, like you know, like Sigmund the Sea Monsters coming down like the the dreadlock style, you know, sitting in the corner of the room, not definitely not Jewish, but they just had to ask. So the whole room goes over to these two like radical hippies, and like, and they're like, "You guys wouldn't happen to be Jewish, would you?" And so I looked up and said, "Of course I'm Jewish." And, and, and the other guy's like, I'm Jewish. And the whole room just goes, except for us, because we didn't know what the hell everyone's talking about. The, all of the other groups just went like, wow! You know? I mean, it was just like one of those Havanagila moments. We were at Havanagila, Havanagila. So we're having our whole Havanagila moment. And uh, it was more of a Havanagila moment. And anyway, so we have our whole Havanagila moment. A uh, cue slide over one so these two can sit together, please. Welcome. So, anyway, so check this out. So we find out that everyone, you know, on the Magic Mushrooms in the dance floor are about 50, while the other group's 20, and they all turn out to be Jewish. It's weird, because they actually sent to it, those two first girls, went on a mission to ask every person on that dance floor if they're Jewish. And the place had completely, unconsciously segregated itself between Jews blowing their minds, blowing their minds on the meaning of life, blowing their minds on the meaning of life and how this relates to that, and that relates to this, and this relates to that, and that relates to this, which is called Bina. That's the part of the mind called Bina. And they're like completely blowing each other away all night. And then a dance floor, floor with 50 goyim, sorry, is this essentials? 50 Gentiles going, going like, you know, like, I don't know what they're doing in there, but they're just moving their bodies up, boom, 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 you know. They, they kept playing the song Safety Dance, you know. S, 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 A, 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 A. You can dance if you want to. You can leave the... So... But we could just hear it kind of thumping on the wall. Thum, 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 thum. And, and they, anyway, this happened over and over again. 
And years earlier, I was at a, uh, I was studying, I was supposed to uh, study for an exam <laughs> for the university that I was supposed to be enrolled in. And um, anyway, but I was at this, studying for this exam, kind of. I went into a learning room because, whatever, an exam. And you're supposed to study before an exam. At least that's what I was told when I was a kid. So I went in there, and um, turns out there were two people in that room. And we, you know, we started talking a little bit. Well, it became one of those great conversations about the meaning of life. You know those great conversations that go all night? You know what I'm talking about, where you'll have a conversation, sometimes with a stranger, sometimes with a friend, but it's often with a stranger. And you'll, you'll just go all night in this amazing conversation about the meaning of life. So anyway, the, next, the sun rose. We all went out to the cliffs in Santa Barbara and watched the sunrise. It was like, we felt like we knew each other forever. We were like, we were like siblings. And anyway, I surfed for a few hours and I called my mother and told her about this conversation. And I said, but, but I didn't study for the exam. And she was like, that's okay. Those conversations are what life's all about. Which was such a sweet thing for my mother to say. And, and it taught me when I was, you know, a young man, it taught me that, that conversations about the meaning of life are, are worth having. And they're important. And they make a difference. And they, they fill your heart with, with purpose and meaning. And, and they're good. These are good things. And so ever since she said that, I just wanted to have the conversation. Like, I just want to have that conversation. But you can't plan such a conversation, right? Can you plan it? It just happens. Like, you can't plan it. So I would just yearn for it. And when it came, it came. But it seemed to come more once I wanted it. And, and then more and more and more until I, I became the kind of person that, that people were seeking that kind of conversation with. So... Or people would say, hey, you got to talk to so-and-so, and then we'll have that conversation because someone was told that they should talk to me. But anyway, that went on and on. End of the story is I show up at Asian Torah here in Jerusalem, exactly like you guys walked in this class, I walked in, just with a hundred of these. Yeah, I had literally a hundred of these coming down my back. And they're natural. I actually have natural, like, Italian curls. So they're really fun, by the way. They just... They just that's just what they do. I do, uh, I do brush them straight, though, because if I don't brush them straight, I get like four to seven on each side. Perfect ones. Just four to seven perfect ones coming down on each side. But if I brush them together, they just zip up like that together, which is it's really cool. I, I can't express to you how cool it is because when I say cool, I don't mean cool like, hey, that's cool. I meant it's great. And convenient because in our community you have to have your pace twisted because otherwise you look like I mean you really look like Krusty the Clown you know you're just like they just go crazy so you have to twist them but what if you have straight hair like this lady like your pace would be perfect this lady over here would be like suffering with like gels and stuff and like trying to get those pace when you're a little girl they or a little boy they would be like putting them in rollers for when you sleep because the mother just she's too freaked out in the morning to get them right and you like you get notes home. You get notes home. I used to get notes home until they got to know us better. You know, my oldest son has straight hair, and they, I would get notes home. Can you please make his payus? Make his payus. Okay, I have to make his payus. So, whatever. We got tired of making his payus. Now we already have. You know, now like eight kids later, we got this little guy with straight hair. And he, he's just like he makes his payus. Like first of all, 
those plays get made like once a month, maybe. And definitely not for school. Forget that. Ain't nobody got time for that. You know, and we're older than all the, we're older than the guy who writes the notes. You know, so he's like, he's certainly not hassling us at this point. Can I just tell you all, when you have children, treat their, treat their administrators as if they're 30 years younger than you. I'm not kidding. Treat the administrators as if they're 30 years younger than you. And you watch the way they react. They'll react as if they're 30 years younger than you. And they'll just start apologizing all over the place. And then doing everything they can for your child. Because I promise you, 30 years later, I mean, if you still are having kids, and we kind of were on the big family plan, but... but at least help your grandkids. But when you're 30 years later and then you're looking at your kids, looking at the, sorry, speaking to administrators, you're like, they, they work for you. And the truth is they, you realize later they were working for you in the first place. You're their client. The kid's not the client. You're their client. And, and treat them as such. They're working for you and make sure they are working for you. You be that, that mother or that father that's like, when the phone rings, they're like getting nervous. Like, oh, what do we do now? But what happens instead? You're a young mother, you're a young father, and you're getting the phone call home because your kid's an absolute rascal. And, and, the, uh, and you're like, what did he do now? I mean, you, the, they have the tables turned. Because think about it. Anyone who's an administrator of any institution is a certified control freak to begin with. So how are they going to relate to the young parents they're dealing with? With control. They're going to control you. All the way to medicating your kids for being creative. You know, creative kids have to get medicated, obviously. Because Lord knows education systems are not very creative. And so if your kid's born creative, there's people who are called creatives. And then there's other people that are born as implementers. Every person, you'll notice that this room has five 50% creatives and it will have 50% implementers. That's the way God made it so that creative people's creativity gets implemented. But what happens is they set up an education system, which is all very fresh on the history of our planet. The education system's like still like wet paint. You know, it's, it's universal education. I mean, there's, most countries still don't even have such a thing, but we all took it for granted. And they made all the creatives feel dumb. All the creatives felt dumb. Today, they medicate the creatives. I just, I was raised before medication, so I was just t made to feel dumb. And, uh, and the, the uh, but today the creatives are, are, are basically killed, you know, numbed with amphetamines and stuff. It's like, it's insane. You know, and then, uh, so, Anyway, but you, as a parent, don't let anybody push you around, okay? They work for you, not vice versa, when, you, when you're going to be that parent. Um, and you'll be shocked, by the way. Don't take my word for it. Just try it once. You'll be shocked at what happens. And they literally get to work. They literally get to work when you do this. Now, um, I get to Israel, and, I mean, people are like, literally, I'm walking by people, and people are like, keep your hands and feet away from his mouth. You know, I look totally crazy for this environment. And, and all I've got is surf shorts, like tank tops, and big amethyst stone, and, and flip-flops. And, and a guitar. 
And that's it. Meaning, it's not like I brought a Shabbos outfit for the Sabbath. You know, like that, that was it. I was that knucklehead you see at the Kotel, you know. And um, what was interesting is during my, my years in Santa Barbara is, uh, is that I was, I was uh, celibate. I don't know if you know what celibate means. Celibate means uh, someone who's, who's not sexually active. So the reason was, was because I realized that, I realized that men are, men are basically hunters. Yeah, they're conquerors. Men are just conquerors. And, and once a man conquers, he moves on to the next kill. Unless, of course, you force him into a bond called marriage, and then he has to stop. Hopefully he stops. But they are conquerors. And the only way to stop him from conquering is force him to have to marry you. Well, how are you supposed to force him to marry you? I mean, that's a little difficult. And the answer is very, very simple. It's a thousands of years old formula. It's called no tiki, no washi. Thousands for thousands of years. Thousands of years. You want sexual favors? I'm more than happy to provide. Just put a little insurance policy on my ring finger and you get it all. But no tiki, no washi. Now, of course, in the 1960s, the sexual revolution, when they... uh, when, you know, women's lib had already been going for, like, a long time already. It's going, like, 30 years. So, like, women have, like, given up every card they got. Like, they've, they've literally placed it on the table. Like, every card they got. There was only one card left, and it was that card. Not every girl, but most girls kept that card close to the chest because it's thousands of year olds old formula to make sure you don't wind up roadkill or 38 in some used car lot. Literally. But comes the, this, the, you know, the late 60s, the hippie era, the sexual revolution. And they're just like, why do we have to be so good when these guys are acting like a bunch of, you know, slime bags? You know, and, and they just put the card on the table. We'll be, we're going to be just like them. And from that moment on, literally from that moment on, men have rented. Why buy when you can rent? And literally, you watch the marriage age went from like young 20s at that point. It was at young 20s. Only like 10 to 15 years earlier, it was like 16, 17, 18 for girls. But it went from young 20s and it just shot to 30. Like that. And then it moved up from there after. Then it went gradually up, but it like shot. Like like it shouldn't have done that. Meaning the history was girls got married between 12 and 14. That's history of the world. But then, like modern times, after the war, it moved up to like 60. Like my grandmother was married at 60. Your great-grandmother was married at 60. Maybe 17. Not yours exactly. I mean, that was the average. I'm not saying yours. So, maybe yours. Yeah. Everyone was. I mean, no one's going to... Why, why wait? You know, it's only a bigger hassle the longer you wait. And if you think you're getting prettier, you're not. You know? So, so like, don't be an idiot. You know, now, now you can possibly fool a man into spending the rest of his life with you. But that, th- those chances are going to go down rapidly as your 20s move on. 
Now the anyway, but that age just like that age just like popped up to like way up out of nowhere, and now you know what the nowhere was. The nowhere was was the sexual revolution just popped it up because you know, now today we have just a single epidemic. Now it's already so much later. What are we? We're now uh, sixty years later. Isn't that crazy? It's six, no, it's 30, 50 years later. That's 50 years later, a little more, and it's like, people are like, people are really stuck. You know, and not to mention, no one has, you know, getting married's nothing, staying married. Staying married's like become like the, even harder than getting married. Oh, crazy world. Anyway, so here I am in Jerusalem. And, you know, I'm, I'm dressed like that. And, uh, and I came to my first Shabbos. I was being hosted. And I was starving because Aisha Torah didn't serve food on Fridays at the time. I don't know if they do now. And to our, the students. And all I've got is a little sheet of paper saying, saying the, my host for that Shabbos night. I'm waiting all day for this. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm like starting to eat my arm. Yeah, and and I and so I'm just waiting for sundown because like, and I ask them, "Is it Shabbos?" And they're like, "Yeah, it's Shabbos." I just went straight to my host. I didn't know you're supposed to pray first. My host is down at the hotel, but I'm rapping on the door till my knuckles are bleeding. And finally, this lady opens the door, outraged, outraged, wearing like a sock on her head, and and. She's outraged, and she's like, what the hell do you want? No, she didn't say it like that, but she's like, no, what is it? Because I had been pounding on her door. She had been sleeping, obviously. She's like, her eyes are all red and stuff. And, and I'm like, I just like stick out my hand. I'm like, hi, I'm Johnny Glazer. I'm your guest this Shabbos. And she just like pulls her hand back. Like, you know, she didn't even pull, put it out. She just went, she's like, you pray first. At the hotel where you find my husband. And after you're through praying, you come back up. And I'm like, what's he look like? <laughs> like, like how am I supposed to find this guy? It's like, it's like where's Waldo? You know? And, and anyway, but I asked her, why did you take your, why didn't you give me your hand? I asked her, why didn't you give me your hand? You know what she says to me? She says an amazing thing. Like, God gave her these words. She says, she says, you know, it keeps things really clear and nobody gets hurt. Now, think who she's talking to. I'm coming from the biggest party school in the world. And I'm, like, protecting the hearts of the entire half-world population called female. And here I am, this, like, champion of the hearts of humanity. And... And she tells me that she doesn't even touch to keep things clear. I was like, I, I, I was not so often I get outdone. But she outdid me. This lady totally outdoes me. And I never heard of such a thing, by the way. It was the first time I ever heard there was such a thing as not touching some of the opposite gender. So I was just like, I bowed to say goodbye, going down to the hotel. I learned the bow trick immediately. So I'm like, it is an honor. And you just totally upped me one. I'll explain later. And, uh, and I'm hereby taking that on. Like, I'm not even going to touch people of the opposite gender. And then I went down to the hotel and I prayed. The next person I touched was my wife. Three years later. 
studying in yeshiva. And I'm still touching her. How did you find the guy? What? Did you find the guy? I didn't find him. <laughs> I didn't even try. <laughs> Thousands of people there. But thank God I had the address. Which is great. So, so here we are in the, uh, you know, here I am in, in uh, you know, these classes. And the, the classes are riveting. I mean, they're like truly meaningful. And, and they're going deeper than we were going in our college campus conversation. These conversations were going deeper. And I was impressed. And, uh, and, but then there were like certain rabbis, like there's one great rabbi named Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz. He was going even deeper. And that really freaked me out because where he was going, I didn't know you could go. And even with all those more psychedelic events in camp, on campus, he was going deeper than we were going, for sure. And you could tell very well by the way he was speaking that you're getting like, you were getting the outer membrane of the periphery of things. Like, meaning he was, you could tell, you can tell when someone's speaking from periphery, but there's an endless more depth. And there was clearly endless more depth than this guy. We were like a joke to him. We were like, we were like a tzedakah case when he was speaking to us in this room. You know, you could tell he was just giving tzedakah of his wisdom. And we were just the, we were the poor people he gave an hour to. And I got to meet a few more people like that. And after a while, I was like, whoa, what's going on here, man? Anyway, so we did a lot of hanging out in the square. Have you guys seen the Jewish Quarter Square out there? So we're doing a lot of hanging out in the square. And I noticed around 10, 11 o'clock one night that we had not stopped talking about the meaning of life for the last six hours. Since the classes here ended, we were there till like, from literally from this time, we just kept going with what the meaning of life was. Um, there was another night, a couple nights later, where we were we were drinking beers in town. You know, we we're you know whatever that area is called over there, where all the Zollies, you know, all, the, all those places. The Zollies didn't exist then, but it was like where all the partying was, and we were partying out there, and we were like getting pretty buzzed. And I realized that we're all totally buzzed, and we're still talking about the meaning of life. It's not stopping. It's just not stopping. And we're, we're passing out every night in the room they gave us here at Asia Terra, you know, like wherever we were staying. And we were like talking till we basically, till someone just stopped answering because he passed out and then you passed out. And then we'd wake up the next morning and go back into the conversation. At this point, I realized that we are the nation of the conversation. We are the nation of the conversation. We're, we are the meaning, we are the embodiment and the meaning of life. And when a Jew doesn't have that meaning, man, he's jumping off a bridge. Forget alcohol. Gentiles drink alcohol. Jews are going to go for something bigger just to numb the pain of a meaningless life. When you've when you got, got 30 terabytes of hard drive and the only software you get is McDonald's, MTV or Facebook. Instagram, you're, 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 it's like a Ferrari in traffic. You know, it's just overheating. You're desperate for meaning. Like, I see Jews, when I meet secular Jews, I don't see this guy, like, you know, with his convertible Audi and stuff and the killer Ray-Bans and stuff. I don't see that. I see an Ethiopian with a, with a distended belly and a swollen skull and, and, and toothpick arms and flies everywhere. That's what I see, because he's desperate. He's desperate. He's freaking out to the point of, 
of like maybe buying this might help. And so if there was a meter of whether you're Western or Jewish, those two don't overlap, man. Because we're the nation of the conversation and Westernism is, they hate that conversation because when you have this conversation, listen to me good right now, everybody. When you have that conversation, you stop being a connoisseur. Did I say a connoisseur? When you have that conversation, you stop being a consumer. And you are happy that everything equals zero at the end of the year. As long as it, as long as it all zeroes out, you're good because we're only here to have the conversation. And we support that conversation. If you got money, support it. I have 30 bucks going here and 40 bucks going here every year. My accountant's like, what, what are these? Like, every month you're like hemorrhaging. And I'm just like, oh, that rabbi is amazing. Like, he's got a whole community who's like, you know, totally in the conversation. He's like, what conversation? Can you stop sending him a monthly whatever? And the answer is no. No, I'm not going to stop that. I want to make sure the conversation's happening because he's one of the leaders of the conversation. We've got to all have this conversation and we're going to fight the West with that conversation. We're not going to stop having it. And if we stopped having that conversation, this earth would just fall out of orbit from the weight of its problems. You know, like the Doobie Brothers song called I'm Here to Love You. You know what the first words are? I heard it said about the weight of the world's problems is enough to make the ball fall right through space. It ain't even worth it to live with all that's going on. Yeah. And you check out that song. It's amazing lyrics. <coughs> we're the nation of the conversation. We need to make sure that we're always having it because otherwise this place is hell. Hell. You want to make this world beautiful. Make sure you're having that conversation. Make sure you're finding people who know how to have it on a higher level than you so that you can glean their wisdom. And for sure, make sure that if you happen to have the wherewithal, that you support the conversation being had. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.